with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Scripture reading this morning is again going to be Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1001. As we've seen over the last few Sundays, in these verses, the author is calling his readers, and, and therefore us, to pay much closer attention to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away from them. What we have heard is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the good news which we have celebrated even here this morning, that Jesus is the Lord's anointed, that in Him all of God's promises are yes and amen, that in Him sinners like us, through faith alone, can be forgiven and reconciled and restored to an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. This is the good news. This is what we have heard drifting from this gospel means beginning to live as if it were not true. Beginning to live as if it were merely words. Such so drifting can be the result of a, a conscious apostasy. There are those who, who deliberately renounce their former profession of faith in Jesus. But often, drifting is more subtle. Often there is no conscious rejection of faith, but, but rather there's an unconscious forgetting. For one reason or another, a person forgets the gospel and, and forgets the hope of the gospel and, and begins to look elsewhere for salvation, begins to look elsewhere for, for life and for security and for happiness. And this is a drifting that can happen to any one of us. All of us in our sinful weakness are prone to forget the gospel. All of us are prone to Look for alternative saviors, especially when we find ourselves in the midst of the, the trials and the tribulations that are all too common in this broken world. And so how do we resist this tendency to drift from what we have heard? That's what the author tells us. As we will see in these verses, he, he tells us the, that the answer to, to drifting is to pay much closer attention to the gospel we have believed. Or, or to use Paul's language from his letter to the Colossians, we are to let this gospel dwell in us richly. We must regularly and, and repeatedly return to this gospel through worship and through teaching and through edifying fellowship with God's people by the means that he has given we must cause this gospel to dwell in our hearts richly. This is what the author is, is calling us to. But why is this so important? Why is it so vital that we not drift? That is the question that the author seeks to answer in the, the second part of this paragraph. And he introduces the the question, by, by asking a question of his own, how shall we escape, he asks, if we neglect such a great salvation? As we saw last Sunday, that question tells us that the gospel is not simply one option 
among many. It's not one strategy for making it through life. It's not one strategy for for experiencing life as it is supposed to be, but rather the gospel is the one option that we must take. It is the one option that we must not neglect. If we forget or, or forsake this gospel, he says, we will not escape. There is no other hope of salvation apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's an offensive claim in our day. It is an offensive claim to, to suggest that Christianity and Christianity alone is the one true religion, that Christ alone is the one true Savior. But I want you to understand that it wasn't a very popular claim in the first century either. People in the first century were were every bit as pluralistic as people are today. In fact, one of the reasons that the Christians were hated in the first century is that they made this exclusive claim for Christ. And the author who is writing to these Hebrews, he understands that. He understands how offensive this claim is. He, He understands how it goes against the spirit of the day. And so he provides his readers with evidence. He provides his, his readers for, with, with proof for the greatness of this Christian gospel, for the greatness of this salvation. First, he, he says that, that this gospel is, is singularly great because it was proclaimed by the Lord, who himself is singularly great, who himself is the eternal God incarnate who, who died for our sins and then rose again victorious over sin and death. The risen Lord himself proclaimed this gospel. And it was attested to us, to those who who did not see Jesus in the flesh, it was attested to us by eyewitnesses who themselves were attested by God through signs and, and wonders and various miracles. Those who spoke for God, those who took this gospel to the ends of the earth, they were publicly validated by the power of God themselves. But not only were those who proclaimed the gospel validated, the author tells us that those who received the gospel, those who believed it, were also validated. How? By gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So we looked at the first two of these evidences last Sunday. The the fact that it was proclaimed by the risen Lord and the fact that it was proclaimed by, by men who were attested by the very power of God. This morning I want us to consider... What the author tells us about the power of the Spirit at work in those who believe, testifying to the greatness of the salvation that is ours in Christ. So let us read again these verses, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's very Word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon 
the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we come before you now asking humbly that you would indeed be at work through your word preached. Father, remember your promise not to let it return void. But Father, may it do its sanctifying work among us. May our minds be renewed and our lives transformed as we are equipped for every good work which you have prepared in advance for us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you know that I enjoy the solitude of my study. Sam likes to study in public places, out in coffee shops and in restaurants, because he he thinks he's going to encounter people there. (laughs) For exactly the same reason, I like to study in my office, because I'm pretty sure I won't. But there are times when I am stuck, when I'm between appointments, and and I have to study out in the public. And I remember one such time when I was in Nashville. I had an hour or two between meetings, and and I was trying to get a little work done as I was waiting for my next appointment. And as I sat there with my laptop open and my, my books spread out on the table, an older gentleman came up to me and asked me what I was working on. When I told him that I was working on a sermon, he inferred that I was a pastor, and he asked which church that I served, and I told him that I was the associate pastor at Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church just down the road. And when he heard this, you could see the quizzical look on his face, and he kind of rubbed his chin, and he said, ah, Presbyterian, you're the ones who don't believe in the Holy Spirit, right? Well, obviously, that's not true. This is Trinity Presbyterian Church. Our our very name affirms that we worship and serve the one true and living God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each being equal in power and glory with the others. And so as Presbyterians, we very much believe in the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, despite our common confession of faith, this is a common perception. Many non-Presbyterians think of Presbyterians as the ones who don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Why do you think that is? Why do we have this unfortunate reputation? No doubt, this misperception is at least partly due to the differences in theology uh, that we have with our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers in Christ. We, we believe different things regarding the Holy Spirit, and particularly the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You may know that as Presbyterians, we do not believe that speaking in tongues is the necessary or even the ordinary sign of, of spirit baptism. We do not believe that everyone who is sealed with the Spirit necessarily speaks in tongues, but rather, while we believe that every Christian, every true believer receives the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, we believe that that the gifts given by the Spirit are distributed according to His will and for His purposes. Not one gift is given to all believers, but rather gifts are distributed as He sees fit for the good of His church. And not only do we not believe that this one gift is given to all, but we also believe that some gifts mentioned in the New Testament are no longer given to believers 
today. We, we believe that some spiritual gifts have ceased. The gifts we believe that have ceased are the foundational gifts, those, the gifts of apostle and prophet. And the reason that these gifts are ceased is not because the Holy Spirit no longer has the power to give them. He is God. But he no longer needs to give them. These gifts were foundational. God gifted certain people to speak the very words of God with infallible authority and inerrant precision so that his gospel might be once for all delivered to the saints. And it is upon the foundation of the words of these men gifted as apostles and prophets that the church is now built, as Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. So think about it. Once a foundation is laid, it is to be built upon. You don't go on laying and relaying the foundation forever. And so the gifts given to the church today no longer serve the foundation, but now they serve the building up of the church. The foundational gifts are, are no longer necessary. And so we believe they are no longer given. And third, because certain gifts were most often given to demonstrate the validity of those foundational gifts, we also believe that the so-called sign gifts, the, the extraordinary gifts, are more rare today. This is not a sign that the Spirit is absent in His church, but, but rather of the history of redemption unfolding the gifts of healing and of miracles, for example, these, these were most often given throughout the history of redemption to validate those who spoke for God. And if they are not those today who are speaking the very words of God with the very authority of God, then it makes sense that those sign gifts would be more rare today. I do not say that they have completely ceased. I think it is possible that God might in His providence choose to give those gifts sometimes, on the, especially on the frontiers of, of gospel ministry. God is God. He does what He wants. We cannot put Him in a box. But it seems indisputable that those gifts are no longer as common as they were in the first century when the faith was being delivered to the saints for the first time. And so while those gifts may still appear on the frontiers of ministry, they are certainly less common where the church has been long established. And these beliefs distinguish us from many of our charismatic and, and Pentecostal brothers. And because what we believe sounds strange to those who, who expect extraordinary gifts and expect the speaking in tongues and expect these things to be commonplace in the church, it often sounds as if we don't believe in the Holy Spirit at all. It's sort of like the first Christians being accused of being atheists. Not because they didn't believe in God, but because they only believed in one. That was such a strange idea in that particular culture that, that it led those who were monotheists to be accused of, of atheism. And, and for Presbyterians who believe that, that God gives his gifts in a certain way today, it sometimes looks like not believing in the Holy Spirit at all. And so there are theological reasons why Presbyterians are sometimes accused of being those who do not believe in the Holy Spirit. But I want you to hear me this morning because I suspect that there may be another reason. There may be more than just theological differences that cause this misperception. I suspect we might sometimes 
be seen as not believing in the Holy Spirit because we fail to properly acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I suspect Presbyterians might sometimes be seen as not believing in the Holy Spirit because we sometimes live as if we didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. Despite our professed theology and our reaction against what we see as the errors of Pentecostalism, we sometimes downplay or, or diminish or even functionally deny the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not all of us, not all the time, but enough of us, enough of the time, that people begin to wonder, do they really believe in the Holy Spirit? I think the question more often than we care to admit is fair. And therefore, I think it is vital for us, as Presbyterians especially, to hear what the author is saying in these verses about the work of the Holy Spirit, and particularly about spiritual gifts. I think we can summarize his main point this way. The author is telling us that spiritual gifts received by those who believe the gospel are a proof of the singular greatness of that gospel. Remember, the, the author is giving his readers reason to pay much closer attention to this so great salvation. He, he is telling them why it is so vital that they not drift away from it. They must not drift away from this singularly great salvation that was proclaimed by the Lord himself. They, they must not drift from this singularly great salvation that was attested by men, attested by God through signs and wonders. And they must not drift from this singularly great salvation because it is through faith in this gospel that the Spirit himself is poured out upon believers. So let's see if we can begin to unpack this a little bit. What, first, what is meant by spiritual gifts? He tells us that, that this gospel is attested by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What does he mean by, by spiritual gifts? Most often, throughout the New Testament, spiritual gifts refer to a, a skill or, or ability that is given to a person by the Holy Spirit in order that they might serve God's glory and the good of his church. This is what spiritual gifts mean throughout the scriptures. We, we see Paul give us a list of, of such gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. He, he writes that God has appointed in the church first apostles, that's a gift. Second, prophets, another gift. Third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of, of tongues. He gives us a similar but, but different list in Romans chapter 12. There he writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of it, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if serving in our service, uh, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads in his zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. These are not exhaustive lists, obviously, but, but they tell us that the, the gifts of the Spirit include apostleship and, and prophetic powers, the, the foundational gifts that I referred to. 
But also include the ability to teach and the ability to do miracles or heal, the ability to help, the ability to administrate or to exhort or to, to give or to serve or to lead or to, to speak a word of wisdom or to speak in a tongue. These are each gifts of the Holy Spirit. However, what the author of Hebrews has in mind, I think, is, is broader than this. The word that he uses here is not the ordinary word for gifts, but it is a, a word that means simply the, a proportion or a distribution of the Spirit. And so, yes, the Spirit gives gifts to believers, but he also gives other graces. Think of 1 Corinthians 13. We refer to 1 Corinthians 13 as the love chapter. It's a chapter that's read on Valentine's Day or maybe at, at weddings when we, we think about what is true Christian love. But it's important for us to remember that, that 1 Corinthians 13 comes right in the middle of Paul's longest discussion of spiritual gifts. Chapters 12 and chapters 14 are all about the spiritual gifts. And so why does Paul put this chapter on love in the middle of that discussion? Well, his point is, is clear. He says, as good and useful as spiritual gifts are, the most excellent manifestation of the Spirit is, is not any particular gift, but rather the most excellent manifestation of the Spirit is love. Love marking the life of a believer. It's why Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. And he expands on this, of course, in his letter to the Galatians, which Rodney referenced in his, his prayer. The, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. The, this is the fruit that, that is produced in the life of the one who walks in the power of the Spirit. And of course, the initial gift of the Spirit is faith itself. Paul makes this point in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, You have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Even faith is the gift of God. And we see this throughout the book of Acts when we read that God opens this person's heart to believe or that He grants to this person repentance unto life. Faith is the initial gift of the Holy Spirit. It's what we confessed in our confession of faith this, this morning, that it is the Spirit who, who enables us to, to understand and to receive and to rest upon this gospel, which presents to us Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners. And so gifts of the Holy Spirit, the, the gifts that the author has in mind here, the, the gifts that, that testify to the greatness of our salvation, yes, they, they include the 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 spiritual abilities that we normally call gifts, but they also include the fruit that He produces in our lives and even the faith by which we are united to Christ at the very first. So these are the gifts of the Spirit, and together these gifts, these portions, these distributions of the Spirit, they bear witness to the singular greatness of the gospel. And it's not hard to understand how this works. Think of some of the scenes that we see in the book of, of Acts. In Acts chapter 11, there was a question about the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church. Why were, were these Gentiles baptized into the church? Why are, are the Jewish Christians now eating with them? Do you remember Peter's answer? 
He said, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. If then God gave them the same Spirit as He gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? The gift of the Holy Spirit was was proof that they had believed this gospel, but it was also proof that this gospel was true, that it was God's gospel, not man's gospel. This was not something made up by man, but this was a gospel revealed by God himself, for God responded to faith in this gospel by pouring out his spirit on those who believed. We see the same thing elsewhere in, in Paul's letters. Paul asked the Galatians a simple question. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Again, the receiving of the Spirit was the the proof that this gospel was a true gospel, that they had truly believed it. We, We see it again in 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul says to the Thessalonians, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, for the gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul knew that they had believed the gospel and they could know that the gospel they had believed was real because it came not as mere words, not mere words to which they gave their intellectual assent, but that it came with power, it came with the Holy Spirit, it came with his full conviction. And so the gifts of the Spirit, the the manifestations of the Spirit's power in the lives of those who believed testified to the greatness of the gospel, testify that this is the gospel of God. So we need to think about what this means for us as a church today. What does it mean for us today to say that the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestations of the Spirit's power in our lives, testify to the greatness of our salvation? I want to suggest to you at least Two applications, one that's corporate and then one that's individual. Corporately, I want to suggest to you that this, that this mean that the, the author's argument here means that if the church is utterly devoid of gifts, then the gospel isn't true. If the church is utterly devoid of gifts, then the gospel isn't true. If those who have believed the gospel have not received the power of the Spirit, then it's mere words. That's a sobering thought. It's it's a thought that Francis Schaeffer himself faced several years into his ministry. He he had been a minister. He was now a a missionary overseas. And and he he had to come face to face with the fact that that he wasn't sure he saw the power of the Spirit, at least as it was described in the New Testament, in the lives of the people he knew who called themselves Christians. And he said, if I'm honest, I have to face the question, why not? If the Spirit isn't being poured out, is this gospel true? If professed believers grieve as those with no hope, if they face trials with the same despair as as unbelievers, if if believers lack any evidence of of fruit, if their lives are not transformed, if if love is not growing and, and abounding, 
if there are no gifts to do the work of ministry that has been given to us, if we are utterly dependent upon our own skills and our own strengths, if there is no supernatural power for this ministry of reconciliation, if the church is devoid of all spiritual gifts, then we need to ask, why do we believe this gospel that promises the Spirit to those who believe? It's a sobering question, and when you live in a place where the church is weak, it can be a hard question to answer. But thankfully, we believe in one church. Throughout both geography and generations, one church that is not devoid and has not been devoid of the Spirit's power. When we look at the church across the world, when we look at the church throughout generations, we see faith and fruit and gifts, not perfectly, but, but truly. We see those believers who have faced trial with incomprehensible hope who, like Abraham, hope against hope, hope when circumstances give no reason for hope. We we see those who have inexpressible joy in circumstances that ought to lead to despair. We've seen the the power of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that full conviction. We've seen that that confidence that, that they can go to the Lord God Almighty and call Him Father. We see faith and we see fruit. Again, not perfectly, but truly. We we see the the Spirit at work transforming those who who believe. We see Him making us new. We see that we ourselves are being changed. That we are not as good at sinning as we used to be. That we are being set free from those those sins that so easily entangle us. Yes, we still fall short. Yes, we are not yet what we will be. But we are not what we were. The Spirit is at work amongst the people of God, and He is gifting us to do the work He's given us to do. Some He gifts to teach. Some He he gifts to evangelize. Some He gifts to help and speak words of encouragement. Some He gives wisdom to know how to uh, apply this gospel to the particulars of a situation. Some He he gives words of exhortation. Some He gives administration. Some He gives mercy. Some He gives giving. And even in this congregation, I see the, the, the bounty of the Spirit's gifts to His people so that we are able as a congregation to do the work that he has given us to do, not perfectly, but truly. So we do see the Spirit in the church. We do see the, the power of the Spirit manifest amongst God's people. And so we must ask, what if we as individuals lack these gifts. Yes, we see them in the church, but I don't see them in my own life. It's a question we must face soberly. It's a question we must face honestly. What if we do not see or do not think we see the power of the Spirit at work in our own lives and in our own hearts? 
I would suggest to you, if that's where you find yourself this morning, if you find yourself utterly devoid of the Spirit's power, then there are three possible options. The first is that you might be blind to the work of the Spirit. This happens. It's, it's happened to me. There have been times when I have gone to my pastor in the past and, and I have said, I, I just don't know if I'm a, if I'm a believer. I can't, I can't stop this sin or I can't get over this weakness. I can't make progress in this area. And in those moments, all that I could see was my failure. All I could see was the ways that I was falling short. And it was a great encouragement to have my pastor and to have others come alongside and say, no, we see the work of the Spirit in your life. Yes, you have a long, long way to go. But you're not where you were. And by the power of the Spirit, you are striving after new obedience. That's why we're not called to live in isolation it's why we must be part of a community. Not only that we might remember the gospel, that's important, but so that we might see the fruits of the gospel in our lives when the accusations of Satan make us blind to them. So the first option is, is am I blind to the work of the Spirit? Ask your brothers and sisters to come alongside you. Ask them to, to tell you what they see. But it is also possible that you are drifting we believe that every believer is sealed with the Spirit, but we also know that not every believer walks in the power of the Spirit. Not every believer lives each day filled with the Spirit. And so therefore, it is possible that you are not now walking in the power of the Spirit. And your life has become infested with the works of the flesh. And thirdly, it's possible that you simply are not a believer. It is possible that you are separated from Christ, that you have never sincerely received and rested upon Him alone for your salvation. And what I want you to hear me say this morning is in some sense it doesn't matter which of those last two is the case. People so often want to look back and say, well, was I a Christian then? I just, I don't, it doesn't matter. The question is, today, will you repent? Today will you own your sin. Today will you confess your failure. Today will you turn to Him for grace and, and throw yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ alone. Today will you deny yourself, deny any hope of saving yourself, and look to Christ as Lord and Savior. For if you will, his promise is that He will not withhold His Holy Spirit. Think about what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11. He says, What father among you doesn't know how to give good gifts to his children? Ask, therefore, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And what is it that He will give? What is it that you will find? He says, How much more? Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead with immeasurable power, is now offered to all who believe. 
And if you will receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, but if you will resolve to deny yourself and follow Him, if you will confess Him as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God will be yours. That you might have a full assurance of your faith. That you might begin to bring forth in ever a greater abundance the fruit of the Spirit. And that you might be gifted to do the work that He has given you to do to the praise of His glory. And because the Spirit is given to all who believe. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we humbly ask for your Spirit. We humbly ask, Father, for the full conviction of these gospel promises. And we humbly ask that they might begin to bear fruit in our lives more and more. And we humbly ask, Father, that by your Spirit we might be gifted to do that work which you have prepared for us to do. Father, this is our prayer. We make it boldly because we are praying for what you have promised in Jesus' name. In his name we pray. Amen.